Welcome to Past Perfect by CEU Medieval Radio. You're listening to an episode from our archives. For more recent episodes, head to podcast.ceu.edu. And if you want to keep up with the latest news about us, follow us on Facebook at CEU Medieval Radio, or visit our website at medievalradio.org. Thanks. This is Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hi, I'm Christopher Melka, and you're listening to Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's show on medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. We're joined today by Alice Choiki, an associate professor at the Department of Medieval Studies at Central European University in Budapest. A very impressive resume. She's uh, worked in all periods from the uh, Bronze Age to the Middle Ages. Uh, she's um, also the faunal analyst at the Aquinku Museum, as well as the founder of the Worked Bone Research Group at the International Council of Archaeozoology. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, um, about the nature of archaeozoology, uh, in the past, um, um, from what I've read of excavations, the tendency was to chuck the most of the bone mm -hmm. material, you know, leftover rubbish. It wasn't really needed, but within the past generation or two, uh, that has changed. Um, would you mind saying a little bit about why this has changed? Right. Well, archaeozoology or zooarchaeology, as it's more often called, uh, actually has a longer history, beginning actually in the 19th century with the excavations at lake-dwelling sites in Switzerland, where you had fantastic preservation of the bone. And But it's true that in between uh, the 19th century and until the period after the Second World War, mm -hmm. there was basically no no attention was paid to the animal bone which is probably the set of artifactual material which is second most common after uh, ceramics. The difference is that people didn't recognize the cultural uh, information carried by animal bones. It looked like biology, biology, biology. Uh, and then there's been a very, very slow development. On the one hand, because of this... this um, biological flavor that was given to the bones. For a long time, it really did remain in the realm of what species are uh, were, were exploited by people in the past, uh, what parts of their body. And then slowly, slowly, people began to realize that the simple fact of choice, you have a large range of animals and some you choose to eat, some you don't choose to eat. Some you choose to make bone tools out of, others you choose not to use their bones for anything, for anything because mm -hmm. they're special animals. Horses are really typical in this regard. Very, very often you find that horses are used as draft for draft power, but not for anything else. People avoid eating them, they avoid using their bones because they're special. Mm -hmm. And th that specialness is cultural culturally given so anyway in the past in the past 20 years or so i'd say where you have 
really improved excavation techniques. People are paying much more attention to things like screening and mm -hmm. sampling. Uh, in certain parts of the world, like France and England, archaeozoology, zooarchaeology mm -hmm. has become much more developed. And actually, it's become much more uh, varied so that in fact, you get specialties. For example, my specialty is, is worked bone. Okay. But, uh, you can have, you, you could have potentially five or six archaeozoologists or archaeologists <laughs> working on a single site material because you'd be working on it from different points of view. So reading the bones, looking at how they've, they've been, what animals are chosen, what parts of the animal are being used, how they're being broken up, uh, how they survive on the site, because that tells you something about how the settlement was actually used, whether you have a lot of trampling going on mm -hmm. in a certain part of the settlement, whether you have uh, bones being buried immediately because you have an efficient uh, garbage disposal system <laughs> going on at the site, which is, for example, really typical of Roman sites, less typical of medieval sites okay. in general. At the rural attitude towards animals, the urban an uh, attitude towards animals, these are all the many different facets of, of the way you can look at animal bones from archaeological sites. Right, right. So um, in general, um, from your experience, do you see a sort of distinction between uh, how people how people deposit worked bone material versus how they deposit, you know, last night's chicken dinner? That's actually an, quite an interesting <laughs> question. Chickens, you don't make bone tools out of chickens anyway, so oh, fair uh, enough. <laughs> generally speaking. But there is a, there's a real difference in the way bone tools are produced First of all, through time, because mm -hmm. you have an increasing industrialization process which goes on. Uh, there's a more serial production of objects. Uh, there's a greater push to producing objects which are the same size, look the same. They're, they're made according to patterns. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the past, prehistorically, you get more individual bones uh, bone tools uh, or bone ornaments. So they're not made in a series. They're made one by one as, as they're needed mm -hmm. according to certain prototypes, mental prototypes. But, uh, there's not this drive to create things which are the same size made from a mass of bones. Mm -hmm. That, uh, the first time that actually happens is in the Bronze Age in Egypt. Hmm. But the times, time it really becomes very evident is in the Iron Age, in the Mediterranean, East Mediterranean, Circo-Mediterranean area. I'm talking about Europe now. I'm not talking about what's going on in the rest of the world. China sure. is a very different story. Definitely. Uh, there you get industrialized production of bone into artifacts, into objects in the Bronze Age. Hmm. So it's much, much earlier. But in Europe, uh, the first time that appears is in the Roman period, clearly. And then you get piles and piles of refuse bone, which are more or less located in one spot. 
that all look the same. So you have bits and pieces of the middle part of long bones, mm-hmm. and you have uh, little rings taken off them because your your aim is to produce blocks of bl- bone of very equal size, and you take you find strong selection for particular uh, kinds of bone. By the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages, that is all blown apart again, and you get this individual production of okay. bone again. But then the urban world mm-hmm. of the Middle Ages begins to grow. Once again, industrialization sets in so that by the high Middle Ages, you have really focused production of bone tools. Sort of like a re- repeat of the cycle that just uh, that, that preceded Of course, it. because it's natural. What, what people are aiming for in a workshop posi- uh, uh, situation is being able to produce material in a predictable way mm-hmm. because they have customers who are going to want certain kinds of things. And if they if they can't produce the things that the customers want, the customers go to the next booth or the mm-hmm. next workshop. So the idea is that uh, it's, it, it becomes a much more complex system where different kinds of artisans are dependent on each other for mm-hmm. producing... Uh, the kind of raw materials needed to produce particular kinds of objects over and over again with very little stylistic uh, variation. It's quite different in the rural situation where right. once again you have uh, the, a kind of ad hoc use of bone. And those those objects are thrown helter-skelter along with the, thrown away helter-skelter along with the... Uh, food, uh, refuse bone from food. Even in excavations today or... Oh, no, 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 they're not the throwing... Ter- the, no, it's not the, the archaeologists throwing them. Well, sometimes the archaeologists okay. also throw them away. That's another story for another... <laughs> but you're talking about how they're deposited in rural settings is the same as, you know, the chicken dinner. Right, exactly. Because you don't have these big piles of refuse bone from workshop production. You have individual... Uh, objects being made according to the need for them. Right, right. Um, in the Middle Ages, was there a per, um, is bone favored for any particular type of object like combs or, uh, I don't know, needles or things like that? Uh, I would say that bone has always, from prehistoric times to the present, been favored for textile and leather working because it's less hard on the on the materials being worked. Mm-hmm. You're less likely to tear the material. So um, I would say that until metal becomes easily available to anyone, bone would be favored for for leather or uh, text, especially textile working co- or making combs, although antler is more important for making combs. Oh, okay. Or horn. Um, I, I also have to ask, uh, this question just came to me when you were talking about the urban workshops. Uh, was there ever like a bone makers guild? Never. Never. There's no, this is one of the great things about the archaeology that it can get at aspects of human existence that are not written down. For example, in Buddha, we know that there were woodworkers called chontosh. Chontosh means bony. Okay. So it's pretty clear that the people who are working 
the wood are also working bone. Uh, it's just not written down because it's, it's not so important. It's not such an important industrial branch of industry. Probably what's also happening is that people who are making clothing or working leather or making weapons, for example, are producing their own bone objects. Oh, okay. So, um, is it, it, it is, in terms of specialization, bone working, um, would you say it's extremely specialized, somewhat specialized, or something it that... It depends on the context. You uh, know that uh, word, context. <laughs> <laughs> it always is important. So the, I, in terms of like maybe rural sites, that's something that, you know, anybody in the family might be able to do? Absolutely. Or? So they know, okay. oh, and you mean in terms of specialists? Yes. In, yeah, so... The specialists live in the urban areas, and I they're see. producing for a particular set of customers. Mm -hmm. In the rural setting, everybody can make these objects because they're not very complex. Mm -hmm. There are traditions behind them, long, long, long traditions of producing particular kind of objects on certain sorts of bones, but there's no steady supply. You need an animal to die okay, uh, right. to make them, and... For example, there you get plenty of use of horse bone because when the horse dies, you make use of every part of its skeleton, even though you're not eating the horse. Right, right. Very important uh, uh, sort of cultural trope there, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's part of a kind of avoidance of horse meat, which is eating, eating horse meat uh, has, its, has its fashions and mm -hmm. it goes out of fashion. So it's not exactly a taboo food, but it's not a favored food either. I see. That actually has to do with notions about, uh, I ran into, with my bone tools, I ran into something which is really, really very fascinating in northern Italy, 21st century northern Italy. <laughs> uh, oh. In the, in the Middle Ages, there was actually, it was actually forbidden to eat horse meat, and that, Basically, that avoidance of horse meat in northern Italy uh, continued until around the 18th, 19th century when, once again, the fashion of eating horse meat began to trickle in through, uh, Fra from France, France into northern Italy. And I was sitting in a delicatessen in northern Italy <laughs> and I saw, saw somebody whip out a bone tool. Oh. Which it's a it's it's a it's a funny looking long bone pin used for testing Parma ham. Huh. And when I asked about it, he explained it had to be made from horse bone because horse was a pure animal uh -huh. and it took on the 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 scent of the meat better than bone from cattle. And this he explained is why you have to keep Horse meat separate from cow meat or pig meat because otherwise the meats will contaminate each other. So there's this whole theory of the nature of horse meat in 21st century northern <laughs> Italy, which I'm sure these kinds of notions have existed since Homo sapiens sure. stood on two legs and looked at the world around them and said, we're different from animals. But yeah. This is what the animals are like. These are their qualities. And those qualities 
have something to do with the biology of the animal, but mm-hmm. a lot more to do with human perception. Right. How very interesting. Now, um, so we uh, talked in the first segment about very nifty archaeozoology stories. I also wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, the medieval animal da- database network. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that you and uh, um, several colleagues, including uh, Gerhard Yaritz, also in the Department of Medieval Studies at CEU, mm-hmm. have had an interest in founding. Uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about sort of what it is and why you feel the need for it? Ah, well, I can tell you how it got started. Okay. I, uh, one of my uh, duties as a native English speaker in the department has been to read some of the dissertations which are in English at our department. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I began to notice that whether it was a philosophy dissertation or a art history dissertation or a straight history dissertation, there were always animals, which people noted from archival material. And I realized that what generally happens is, since the animals weren't the central part of the dissertation, they tended to appear in a footnote, and then even if the book, uh, the dissertation was later published, the animal footnotes mm-hmm. would fall out, and it's as if they, they they rose into the light of day and then descended into the dark of the archive <laughs> once more. And right. it was a terrible waste of wonderful data. Of course, at that point, I was thinking only in terms of zooarchaeology, very selfishly, <laughs> because one of the ways of producing good research is to use data from a multiplicity of sources, if that's at all possible. Mm-hmm. But the problem, for example, with zooarchaeologists is that there's a tendency to cherry pick. You mm-hmm. pick out the data, well, usually well-published, repeated over and over again, almost to the point of being topoi, uh, mm-hmm. data from historians, and use it without really understanding how it was gathered uh what the context again that that word context but uh-huh. both the intellectual context the historical context for certain kinds of data so not all data is the same even though superficially it looks very similar right we all know that so the idea of the mad medieval animal uh-huh. database network was to produce or is to produce a website that people can go to and see what kinds of data are out there in different historical fields uh, to produce a multidisciplinary uh, data set. The aim is not to produce a site where you can do dissertation uh, research right. on It's simply to get an idea of what kinds of data might be out there. And what we ask people to do when they submit an entry, for example, an art historian has an image of a, of a snake Mm -hmm. on top of a capital from a cathedral. And an archaeozoologist looking at that might say, ah, this is proof that there were snakes in, in medieval Spain. Very likely there were snakes in medieval Spain, <laughs> but uh, and that the snake was a holy animal. 
This is what happens when you have no idea what you're talking right, about. Right, I see. But you're taking a superficial impression and using it. The idea is then that the art historian will say, yes, this is a snake. It's a snake on the Capitol from the church at blah, blah, blah. And this is what it means in an art prop with a proper art historical I breakdown see. that it's not a symbol of uh, anything good. It's not a symbol of snake farming in the region. It, it, this is what it, it means, and that's why it's there. Right. And in fact, the form of, you can't take the form of the snake as being a local snake because this is a topos, this is a, a genre of, of snake carving, which is taken from who knows where, Italy, <laughs> Egypt, who knows where. Mm-hmm. That's the point. I that, see. uh, it's meant to both, be both uh, a presentation of what's out there, but a correct presentation. I, if do you, if you understand what I mean? Oh, sure, 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 I do. Because um, animals could have um, very different meanings in the Middle Ages. I mean, snakes are something that obviously, due to the you know story of Adam and Eve, mm. we usually associate as a. They, they usually have a negative connotation to they them, do. but. They do. Um, you know, attitudes towards other animals could be very. I, I, I'd imagine at least that they could be, if not contradictory, at least somewhat ambivalent. Well, that's it. Amb- ambiguity is the name of the game here, <laughs> and context is the other name again. <laughs> I know it's. We really re- like that word today. <laughs> I, we like that word because it's critical sure, to, sure, to sure. all historical research. Sure, sure, sure. And uh, no more so than with animals. And so even snakes have their positive aspects, of course. And we know very well from folklore that people, even today perhaps in in southern Europe, have the house snake, which is a protective snake. Uh, Until very recently, people made necklaces of snake vertebrae to protect them against this or protect them against that. So snakes have power, and whether it's the power used for protection or power used in a negative way, mm-hmm. again, it depends on what the particular situation is and what the artist or the writer was trying to portray with use of the snakes. But, for example, as, as a lovely example, in uh, actually on the MAD uh, data set, uh, data network that I'm, I'm particularly fond of, uh, one of our graduate students, uh, Christina... Arany inputted letters from the Datini family. It's a late medieval North European, a North Italian family. Mm-hmm. Letters back and forth from husband and wives in which they discuss various animals in their lives, but particularly their cats. Oh, okay. And, and Mrs. Datini, if I, if I can call her so, <laughs> is very concerned about this pregnant cat and when she's going to have her kittens and what happened to another cat. She seems to have disappeared and I hope nothing terrible has happened to her. At the same time, we have another set of sermons from the exact same area, exact same time period. Uh, i not quite sure I remember the name of the preacher, but mm-hmm. some kind of Francis, Franciscan preacher in which he describes cats as being familiars, as being uh, devilish animals. Right. And it's the same cultural context 
but very, very different uh, situ- social situation. One is a domestic so- situation. The other is sermons mm-hmm. about against superstition, against uh, evildoing in society. And there, cats are treated in totally different ways. And that's right. precisely the aim of MAD, to show that uh, we have a spe- these species in our heads uh and in fact even that is is a is a really tricky concept mm-hmm. because we we think of species as being very set entities but they weren't at all set in the medieval mind so the 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 boundaries between what we think of as uh cats or dogs could be quite permeable mm-hmm. or between human and animal were quite permeable. Uh, you have the wild man, which mm-hmm. is somehow has many animalistic characteristics, the Wildemann. Right. Uh, and at the same time, you have animals which are shown with quite human characteristics. And I think that that is something else. Uh, we, 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 we at MAD, don't draw a line between mm-hmm. so-called real and, and unreal animals because those are categories which di- didn't exist 500 years ago. In some ways, if you look at Mickey Mouse, our Mickey Mouse, they also don't exist today. How many mice have you ever seen running around on two legs? Wearing pants, no less. Wearing pants. <laughs> And talking to Minnie in a <laughs> in a in a familiar fashion, uh, Pluto. Yeah. All those uh, Disney animals are completely anthropomorphic. So hmm. they mix our animal, our notions of what dogs are like, right. mice are like, our human <laughs> notions, with the actual biological animals. Hmm. No different from what you find in marginalia, in 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 illuminated texts in the Middle Ages. Except that what we don't know and what we're trying to gather is the large range of attitudes towards animals, which will differ from place to place. So what's going on in Scandinavia in terms of attitudes to animals is clearly going to be different from what's going on at the same time in Hungary or France or England especially. And, of course, this is another aim of MAD, to bring animals fr- from all periods, from the, say, the third century mm-hmm. uh, until early modern times into one one place, but also to bring animals from Estonia, from the so-called margins of Europe, yeah. which who knows how mar- marginal, for, for people living in Living in Estonia, that wasn't the margin. Exactly. That was the center. Sure. So in the same way, the attitudes to the animals are going to be very different from place to place. But what we tend to get in general is a lot of attitudes toward animals as that that happened in the Anglo-Saxon or French world, and especially as that happened in the literary world. So Roman de Renard is something that many, many, many people know about, at least in the English-speaking world. But 
how that's translated and transposed and transformed sure. in other parts of Europe is much less well known. And that's another aim of MAD, of course, is to bring as many of these strands together, which is why it's absolutely impossible. We're not aiming to get every bit of information that ever was written down about animals. We're interested in getting a large range which more or less represents different time periods, different regions, and different attitudes to animals. Sounds very ambitious. Um, (laughs) It's very ambitious. (laughs) (laughs) Getting back to something that you said earlier, um, the division between real and unreal. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're you're talking about things like dragons, like uh, unicorns. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, if you look in the bestiary, you find all sorts of animals that you wouldn't expect to see, and you can explain them in all sorts of different ways. Sometimes these are animals that are reported on, of course, Pliny is one of the great sources of information for medieval people about animals, and Pliny didn't always get it right. Okay. So, for example, with the giraffe, Pliny doesn't write that the giraffe has a long neck. He somehow forgets that that might be an interesting <laughs> thing to say about a giraffe. It's conceivable Pliny's never seen a giraffe, okay. of course. And then that is transposed into middle writing, middle age writings about giraffes as, and, and in images of giraffes, they have quite short necks. Sometimes they have spots because they're conflated with other animals. <laughs> but for the people who have never seen a giraffe sure. or they've never seen an elephant or they've never seen a crocodile, mm-hmm. of course, these are real animals. These are as real as a dragon. You, you, you're not going to meet a giraffe in the North European woods, and you're not going to meet a dragon, probably. <laughs> but so, so in the in the in the in the mental world of people, both animals are real, and that's why we don't use the word imaginary. We, for for us, everything is on a more or less equal footing, whether it's a dog or a dragon. Well, especially in, in talking about how they were used, the sort of context that people viewed, you know, the dragon, for instance, mm-hmm. I mean, is, is, is very, is a, is a key figure in the story of mm-hmm. St. George, obviously. Um, right. I, and I remember, um, mermaids were often used as a, um, very, uh, sort of demonizing aspect in sermons mm-hmm. about women's sexuality. Yes. You know, you can see the way they're represented on stove tiles. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> there, there's something going on there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, dragons are very often conflated with serpents, again. Mm-hmm. And serpents having this positive and negative uh, aspect. But you can even have good dragons. Not all dragons are are bad guys. And And... You also have this funny thing where people are making up stories about real biological objects. So, for example, you have people in Northern Europe are trading with Inuits in Greenland. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they're trading is the, are the incisors of narwhal, which is long, thin, pointed with a kind of a, a spiral pattern on it. Uh-huh. And if you look at pictures of unicorns uh-huh. on, for example, the famous uh, 
Lady in the Unicorn Tapestry that you can see in the Cluny Museum in, in Paris, uh-huh. you see that all those unicorns have nice spiral pattern on them. You can even find unicorn horns, also known as narwhal incisors, <laughs> in church treasuries. Okay. So, this is why real and unreal, what what sure. does this mean? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's even a very amusing get, I think it was Gessner. I, I can't quite recall who tried to reconstruct the skeleton of a unicorn from fossil bones and uh, narwhal horn. <laughs> so because by the end of the Middle Ages, you do have this kind of impulse that you want to materialize all these interesting animals that right. you've been talking about. Yeah. And that's not always so easy in the case of anim- more elusive animals <laughs> such as unicorns. Mermaids, dragons, right. M- mermaids <laughs> and dragons, that's right. I also wanted to ask you a little bit more about, um, um, for those of you who don't know, I research Hungarian queens, and um, one of my um, queens has a seal in the 13th century where mm-hmm. she's seated on a throne and... Um, uh, to the side of the throne, um, it's adorned with the heads of two dogs. Mm-hmm. And these, these aren't little like, um, you know, tiny chihuahua type lap dogs. These are really muscular, thick necked, uh, mm-hmm. very fierce animals. And Mastiffs. Yeah, something like mm-hmm. that. So we, it's something that, you know, I don't see in the series of seals. It really appears to be a one time thing. So how do you know they're dogs? Um, oh wow. <laughs> That's a really good question. Because this is iconography and it's sometimes very, very difficult to, uh, say whether an animal is, uh, a lion mm-hmm. or a, a mastiff or a, uh, a dog or, or a wolf even. Or a wolf. Um, it's sometimes people do. Uh-huh. put labels on animals, and then those are the labels that get passed down from generation to generation as historical facts. Mm-hmm. But in fact, nobody knows for sure. Yeah, the the only sort of explanation is that I looked at the seal and I said, oh, those look like dogs, mm-hmm. <laughs> to be perfectly honest. But uh I just, I just, I just thought that was, was odd. And we were talking mm-hmm. earlier about, um you know, uh, dragons and unicorns and mermaids but uh, i guess i sort of wanted this to serve as a segue into mm-hmm. sort of um well more practical animals on one hand and yeah. sort of more more practical aspects of how people in the middle ages were interacting with them well that's right i mean this is another aspect that we're interested interested in in uh, at mad and as someone who has done a lot of straight archaeozoological work that mm-hmm. is Network. looking at the animals in their biological aspect as well. I'm, I'm quite interested in the e- economic aspects of animals, uh, what animals are being uh, appearing in, in charters, are animals being bequeathed in wills, uh, mm. the, those are all butchers. I've just heard an absolutely remarkable um paper on the butchers of Paris and the local local area. And it, curiously enough, the, the rules, some of the rules of the butchers' guilds are uniform all over Europe, but mm-hmm. they have their own 
local aspects as well, which is very, very interesting. And that's also the kind of information we're looking for uh, uh, to add to the MAD. Um, um, knowing nothing about butchery, I have to ask, uh, how could really it be local, like in terms of mm -hmm. disposal of, you know, unwanted organs or something? Well, for example, in, in Hungary, there are clear rules that animals have to be butchered over the water uh, as a way of getting rid of the effluence. And I think that that's less of a critical issue in Paris at the same time. Mm -hmm. Or what uh, kinds of animals are being... Uh, the butchers have control over what kinds of animals are, are is the same butcher allowed to butcher uh butcher and sell wild animals along with uh domestic animals is are they allowed to sell sick animals nowhere are they allowed to sell right. sick animals <laughs> uh so if you can't get your animal to walk in on all four legs you're in you're in trouble, trouble. because nobody is going to uh, in theory, nobody is going to buy the meat. What constitutes bad meat? Mm -hmm. uh, what happens to the bad meat? Does it go to the poor house, uh, people in the poor house or in the hospitals? Mm -hmm. So there are many, many different kinds of practical documents. And the archaeozoological data itself is con data of consumption. Mm -hmm. So we can learn a lot about... Uh, habits of consumption in at in different social uh social groups or different religious groups for example you have a famous well up in the castle district of buddha uh it's the well where at the very top you find a textile from anjou an anjou uh textile loads and loads and loads of fantastic leather goods mm -hmm. some of which have the little anjou fleur de lis on them but below a certain level, uh, and lots of pig bones, people mm -hmm. are eating swine right and left. Mm -hmm. And then below a certain level, the pig bones disappear and out pop little fragments of ceramics with stars of David on them. Because at one time, the Jewish population lived in the area of the Teleki Palace mm -hmm. in the Buddha Castle. And you also find a difference in the kind of fish that are being eaten. I, I wanted to ask about the, 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 when we were talking about butchering, about the, the kosher question, because, um, on, uh, archaeozoology, zooarchaeology, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, in that case, um, they were looking at Jewish districts in one of the articles, and in some of the cities, I can't remember which, it was very clear you have no pig bones, you know, that looking at the animal bones, it's very clear that, mm -hmm. um, this this pop th that this population was keeping the kosher diet. While in some of the the other cities, it was a bit more blended. There were there were the odd stray finds. Um, mm -hmm. The percentages were different, and it wasn't you know black and white. It's human beings at work. Of course, that is the contribution that archaeology in general can make to the historical sciences. That it sh you have. A normative picture, which is provided by sources. Mm -hmm. And then you have the archaeological picture, which is about the variability, the real variability in human lives. And, however, bringing the two sets of data together, gathered in very different ways and reflecting, one re reflecting consumption directly and the other 
usually reflecting questions about production because production and money are mm -hmm. hand in hand. Uh, it's sometimes very difficult to bring those two aspects together in sensible ways. And that's, of course, something that, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a problem. It will always be a problem, but it actually doesn't mean that you have to stop trying or that you use one set of data incorrectly mm. in order to twist it into a form that makes it usable for, uh, confirming or rejecting a hypothesis you have about how things are working in a certain place, whether you're an archaeologist or a, a straight historian. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a problem, but it doesn't mean it's something that you should give up on. And again, the purpose of, of, of MAD is to present different kinds of data explaining uh, how we got to the answer that we're giving mm -hmm. in the MAD. And people, researchers, have to make their own decisions about whether that data th then is usable or not usable or simply suggestive. That's the way the historical sciences work anyway. No definite answers about anything. Right, right. I <laughs> um Getting back to something that we talked about earlier, this the sort of line between humans and animals. Yes. Um, well, your expertise is on worked bones, yes? Mm -hmm. um, I have to ask, um, maybe not in the Middle Ages, but are human bones ever of course. reused? How? But they're very rarely... So that's a really tricky question. Mm -hmm. Most of the time when human bones are used... They're used in one of two ways, mm -hmm. either in a very ritual fashion. So, for example, in Maori culture, people use human bones for, um, they, they carve flutes out of the, the femur, the thigh bone mm -hmm. of an important relative. And those tends to, tend to be objects which are passed down Air through bones. multiple, multiple generations. Um, in, other places, you have the distinct feeling that people are using human bone in a very derogatory way. So I can think of a, in this case, a Bronze Age massacre that took place in uh, northern Iraq mm -hmm. uh, 4,000 years ago or so. Mm -hmm. It's clear there was a massacre, and on the edge of the massacre, you find human bones which have been fashioned into very crude implements. And it's a way of saying these people are no better than animals. Right. If you see what I mean. But always, when you have human bones being used, there's an agenda behind it. Some kind of an agenda. Human bones are not used anywhere in the world at any time in history or prehistory simply as a raw material. They're actually not very good raw material. Uh, they tend to be quite porous. They're not nearly as Break nice easily. as horse or cattle or sheep or goat for making bone tools. So there's always an agenda mm -hmm. behind the production of tools or implements or objects or ornaments made from human bone. Yeah, the, o the only example I could think of off the top of my head was this, um, I think, um, Russian prince from the 10th century who... Uh, 
got defeated by his enemies and they turned his skull into a drinking cup. Well, that's it. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a comment more on how they're positioning him. Right. I, there are also walrus skulls from the same, same period which are turned into drinking cups. So it's not, I'm not saying they're making the equivalency between <laughs> walruses and this poor prince, right. but, uh, the idea is the same. Mm-hmm. That you're drinking out of your, your, your foes, the source of their soul or, or, or whatever it happens to be. It's not a neutral object. Right, right. And, um, what other sort of interactions between humans and animals do you see at the zooarchaeological zoo level? Well, it's clear level. you have you have hunting and all its different ritual forms and okay. gendered ritual forms. Hunting tends to be more, especially of of particular game animals such as wild boar mm-hmm. or lions or wolves tends to be more of a male activity. Mm-hmm. Women do take part, but in a very, sometimes in a very, uh, uh, strict way. It's not, it's a class. Hunting tends to be a class oriented activity sure. because not everyone has the same rights to those animals in the woods. Right. Uh, or if they take their rights, if they, <laughs> if they, if they go over the, over certain boundaries, they can be penalized. And you see that very clearly, actually, in the rural material. You have virtually no use of antler. Virtual people are not going near the wild animals, uh, which they could do because I'm sure they were surrounded by roe deer and mm-hmm. and red deer in the woods. But they're not going after those animals in general. Um, you also have really specialized use of certain kinds of wild animal bones, for example. Flutes made out of uh, eagle bone. Mm. Obviously, the eagle has died, and they're taking those 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 flutes. That there are a pair of them at Vishagrad, made mm. from golden eagle bone, and those are again flutes which are not used in one generation. They're used in several generations because of the wear on them. Well, we're going to take uh, a very it's, short it's very break. Clear. Okay, and these be back are momentary. special objects. And and there that that's where the animal human boundary is also permeable because it's human beings who are deciding that mm-hmm. these birds have some kind of special characteristic that make them especially applicable for use in music. And eagle, curiously enough, eagles don't have a very beautiful song, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, there are several ethnographic examples I can think of that eagle bones are especially sought after for making simple flutes. What would you say is sort of the most interesting um, find that you've had from uh, your your own experience? Uh, you know, that's a really, really, really diff- difficult question because archaeology is not about, as you know very well, individual finds. Sure. It's about accumulation of knowledge which leads to eureka moments. Mm-hmm. I've had a very few real eureka moments in my life which have to do with processing of bone. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I actually can't think of any, any find which, which leaps out at me and says, I'm fantastic. I have a few, <laughs> I have a few favorites. For example, for example, a very peculiar, 
very primitive looking piece of antler from Roman, late Roman Akvimkum, which is clearly not Roman, but it comes from a Roman layer. And that's the kind of, I always prefer things which are not in place, mm-hmm. which demand explanation because it's within the variability of material culture that you begin to see patterns and patterns which uh, help you to a better understanding of how the world around you is working. And that goes for animals as much as pieces of pottery or or weapons or or anything. If everything looks the same and it's just cookie cutter. Yes. <laughs> then there's not much information in that. It's in the in the odd pieces which give you uh, shed light on how a whole system might be working. For me that's one of the things I find most interesting about this um the the the, the workings of the discipline the you know history and the written sources and archaeology mm-hmm. and the material sources and even art history is the right. fact that you have three different sources of information. They could be all saying the same thing in different ways, or they could be all saying completely different things. things. And it's those those tensions, those it is. It those is exactly those, those those moments where the 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 data doesn't meet up. Mm-hmm. That I find I think is yeah. really fascinating and very frustrating. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I I agree with you. That's what research is all about: finding those. Those, those, uh, connections between different kinds of data and seeing how you can make them work or trying to understand why they're not working that, that push you, propel you forward with new questions all the time. And it doesn't matter if it's zooarchaeology and you're looking at the pathology and then reading about what animals are allowed to be butchered or not butchered. Uh, Finding ways to make those two different sets of data work, animals which are clearly lame and they're being used until they can no longer, they can barely stand up, but stand (laughs) up long enough to make it to the butcher's shop. And is everybody eating old meat or some people eating meat from young animals? Mm -hmm. And what does that say about economic status or social status? Uh, I think all those sorts of things are really, really very interesting. And it's what keeps me going through all the frustrating moments when nothing seems to add up. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining sure. us today. It was, it was fascinating hearing you talk about the, uh, your work with the medieval animal database. And, uh, well, we look forward to, uh, what you have to, to come up with us, uh, And to the listeners at home, uh, thank you for tuning in. Um, Be sure to listen to the program live at www.medievalstudies.ceu.hu slash radio. Visit our Facebook site or send us an email at medievalradio at ceu.hu. Thank you again for joining us. You're very welcome. And thank you again for listening.